Okay, let's stand and read Jonah 1, 1 to 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Please be seated. So I'm going to begin this morning by explaining what's going to be happening over the next three weeks before John and Sheraldine get here. Uh, he'll be preaching the two Sundays that they are here. But over the next three weeks, um, we won't be getting into a sermon series because there's not enough time before John and Sheraldine arrive. So we're going to do three topical sermons, uh, things that have been on my heart uh, lately, and things I've been learning in my own sort of pro private devotional life that I feel like you need to hear. And so uh, we'll start a new series, a new book, in, in September, when everything kind of settles down again. And we're just trying to discuss amongst our leadership uh, like what we're going to be preaching on as a book. But I want to speak to you, obviously, from the life of Jonah this morning. And uh, this inspiration of why I read this text to you came as I was reading over my vacation time. And the story is really well known to many of you. Uh, you know it probably inside and out. For others, you may not be as familiar with it and don't know all the details. So because we're only doing three verses today, I'm going to give you a quick summary of the entire event of Jonah in about a minute. Paul's notes version of Jonah. So there's a prophet in Israel named Jonah. He's been commissioned by God to go to a city called Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria back then. And he was to preach a message from God to the people, one of judgment. Jonah refuses to obey and does his best to run away from the Lord. Jonah boards a ship, and since Nineveh is east of Israel, he attempts to run as far away from God as possible by going west. Upon traveling, God wants um, to get a hold of Jonah and change the circumstances, and so he creates a storm in the sea that basically terrifies the sailors. Um, and so they find out that Jonah is the reason for the storm. They throw him overboard in order for uh, God to relent against the calamity that's coming upon the sailors in their ship. A giant fish swallows him up and spits him out back on land. Probably back where we started, <laughs> from where God first commissioned him, although the text doesn't tell us. But that would be quite a sense of humor on God's part. Jonah obeys the second time when he's commissioned. He preaches a message to the Ninevites. The people repent, and Jonah is not happy about it. He's an angry man against the repentance of the Ninevites. And the story ends with God showing compassion towards the people and Jonah being angry. So that's the Cold Stone version. Now, uh, before I actually get into the main text, I want to speak specifically to an issue that comes up in the Christian community about um, Jonah's story. And if you're a teenager or younger, and you need to listen to me very carefully right now because I'm actually targeting you as kids. See, you live in a culture in which the Bible is becoming increasingly challenged for being true. Actually, this is true for the adults as well, isn't it? 
But you, you will read things in the Bible, and people will say that's impossible because that defies logic. Jonah is one of those stories. In fact, it's so much so that unfortunately the title of the story has been called Jonah and the Whale. You can't find a kid's book, I don't think, that talks about Jonah and the Whale. That's not what the story is about. It's not about Jonah and a whale. It's about a loving God who wants to show, extend a hand of incredible mercy towards people who are sinners. And in his love and compassion towards them, offers them a second chance of life. And about a prophet who is judgmental towards people, and God has to use him despite his judgmentalism to get a hold of these people's lives. It's there to teach us about a just God who judges sin, but at the same time if we repent, he will just love us unconditionally. That's what it's about. That's the relevant message for the world today. It's not about some stupid Jonah and the whale. So that's the first thing I want to say to the kids. The second thing is this though. Because it's being challenged that the Bible has no literal uh, relevance in the culture today, someone would say, you can't believe this is being true because it defies logic. Where in the world today can anyone be swallowed by a fish, for example, and survive? That is absolutely impossible. So you can't take the Bible literally. This can't be true. This is basically God using a fairy tale story to try to teach some spiritual truths. So what can't be written can happen because it doesn't happen in today's world. Let me give you reasons quickly as to why you can trust this story to be true in the literal fashion. First, you have to recognize that many more miracles in this story happen than just Jonah being swallowed by a fish. Consider the miracles in the story, and I, didn't, I put them all in here, but here's some. There's the miracles of what happened with the wind and the seas. In chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and a violent storm arose. It says there that they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the rage of sea grew calm, in verse 15. And in chapter 4 and verse 8, it says, God, God um, provided a scorching east wind, basically to um, dry up a plant. So he has, the miracles are the power over nature. But then we have power over his creation in other ways, in terms of the land and plants and so on. So in 4 verse 8, it says that, or 4 verse 6 rather, the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow. In, in verse 7, he says, the next day God provided a worm which chewed the plant. So there's more miracles in here than just a fish. If you're going to deny the fish happened, you have to deny everything else like this happened as well. It has to be logical, it has to be consistent all the way, it can't be consistent at all. So, why is that so important to believe it to be consistent? I want you to think about Jesus' ministry. Can you think of anywhere in the scripture where he had power over the seas, power over the wind, power over other things in creation, like food and plants. Well, let me remind you what the scripture says. This is Jesus in Mark 4.39. 
And he, Jesus, got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. When it came to a fig tree on the way to Jerusalem, a week before his crucifixion, he cursed a fig tree. Remember that coming into Jerusalem? When he left Jerusalem and they came back to, to sorry, when they came back the next day, here's what the disciples say to him. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. If you deny the fact that God did these miracles in Jonah, you have to logically conclude then that Jesus didn't do these miracles either in the New Testament. Either God has control over nature or he doesn't. Either God has control over animals or he doesn't. Either God has control over plants or he doesn't. And here's why that's important. You think believing that Jonah survived the belly of a fish is a, is a big... Um, a big miracle to believe in, you got a bigger one in John eleven forty three. John eleven forty three. Lazarus. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, the man who had died, four days, by the way, four days in the grave, had come forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. If God if, can take a dead man from the grave after four days and resurrect him to life, he's got no problem preserving the life of a man in a fish for four days either. See, the issue is this. Do you believe in a supernatural God or not? That's the issue. Do you believe God has miraculous power or not? If you do, the story of Jonah has no problem. If you don't, then you're going to have a problem with Jesus as well. And anything you read in the New Testament... So kids, you're up against a hard one in this world because the Bible is not going to be taught to you as being true. And you're even going to find what I call liberal pastors or liberal scholars. You could attend other churches in Canada and they will stand up before you, just like I am today, and tell you that this is a metaphorical story to teach you a spiritual truth that didn't actually happen and use your brain because logic tells you so. To deny Jonah is to deny Jesus and everything he did because he controlled everything in this world that God did in the Old Testament. Now, I know I took a long time to explain this, but I think it's worth it. But I'm going to give you one more text to leave you with to see if Jesus thought that Jonah actually happened. Matthew 12, verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as, it's a comparison, just as Jonah was there three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If Jonah is metaphorical, it didn't actually happen, then Jesus talking about him being buried and resurrected for three days is metaphorical as well. It didn't actually happen. And what does Paul say? If the resurrection didn't happen, your faith is useless. And your faith is futile. It means nothing. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you're, you are still in your sins. Amen? So let's begin by getting to the heart of the passage. Let's read verse 1. 
The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amity, saying, Jonah lived as a prophet in Israel about 800 years before Jesus was born. A key text, if you like to write notes in your Bible, is 2 Kings 14, 23-25. It says there that Jonah was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam, who reigned from 793-753 to 753 BC. So that puts Jonah 800 years before Jesus. As a prophet, then, Jonah has a job to do. His task is very clear. He's to act as God's mouthpiece. Whenever God had a message for Israel to hear, whether it be instruction or warning, Jonah was to speak in God's behalf. This situation is really unique for Jonah, though. He's put in a new situation. You see, as a Jewish prophet, who would Jonah have been accustomed to speaking to? Jewish people, the Israelites. God is asking Jonah to go outside of Israel's borders into a neighboring Gentile nation. He's to go to people that God doesn't usually speak to in terms of like a nation or as a people group. So here God is commissioning Jonah to go outside Israel's borders to Nineveh, a city that was then within the nation of what was called Assyria. Now what's interesting is Nineveh in terms of its location still exists today. Does anyone know what city in the world Nineveh still is? And where it is. Okay, anyone heard of Mosul in Iraq? Mosul in Iraq is Nineveh. It still exists. I'll show you a map. There's Iraq uh, today. If you look to the far extreme left against the, the Mediterranean Sea and your far left of the map, you see a little sliver of land. That's Israel today. So you, you just move over um, to the, the right, Assyria is to the north, sorry, Syria today is to the north, and then to your immediate right is Iraq, and Mosul is Nineveh. Here is a remnant of the, in Mosul, this is uh, actually of the Ninevite uh, walls. So archaeologically, if you go there, you can still see the original walls of Nineveh in the land. So that's really, really cool. So that's where, that's where uh, he is sent to, and you can see um, the distance of travel they had to go. You had, uh, had to go from Israel all the way across. And we'll get into that in a second when we look at Jonah's attempt to flee from God. But that's basically what's going on in Jonah. So let me give you a background to the Assyrians and the city of Nineveh. Let's just say they had a long history of brutality, moral and spiritual bankruptcy. You'll notice that in verse 2, God says this, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. God was not kidding when he said that they were a wicked city. Uh, their wickedness is really well described in Nahum chapter 3. In Nahum chapter 3, it says this, that woe to the bloody city, Nineveh, completely full of lies and pillage, her prey never departs, the noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, and the galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. You notice what they're known for? They're, they're full of lies and pillaging, and they're absolute violence. They kill so many neighboring nations and so many people, you stumble over the dead bodies because of the carnage that they create. They're extremely violent people. 
Archaeologically, I found some things that showed uh, what people have dug up of atrocities that are too drastic to speak of in this church. The things they would do to people when they would capture them in war. Just the most tame one they could find was actually chronicled in the Bible. In 2 Chronicles 33, verse 11, it says that when they caught, captured King Manasseh, King of Israel, they put hooks like in his nose, through his nostrils, to basically drag him around. That was the least of the problems that you would face as a, as a war victim. Most people didn't survive, and the torture was incredible. But they were extremely wealthy. Nahum chapter 2 describes their wealth. It speaks of their abundance of gold and silver and their livestock. No kidding, because they pillaged other people, so they became very wealthy through it. But they were known for their idolatry and worship of false gods. In Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 10, they mentioned Nineveh's practice of idolatry. And they participated in the detestable ceremonial practices of the pagan nations around them. They would even sacrifice their children by burning them in fire to the gods of the day. So this is the kind of people that we're dealing with when God wants to send Jonah. And so he is not kidding when he says, go and cry against the city because the wickedness has come up against you. Now the king himself, the king himself knew that they were wicked. In chapter 3 and verse 8, look at this. After Jonah speaks, this is the king's decree. He says, both men and beasts must be covered with sackcloth. Let men call on earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. The king himself recognizes that there are wicked, violent people. And he's hoping by repenting and putting on sackcloth and bowing before God, that God will not judge them. Now I just want to go back one slide, because this is important. Um, how do I go back on this, Kevin? I want you to notice one thing about Jonah's journey. If he obeyed God the first time, you'll notice that uh, he only had to go 550 miles northeast to get to Nineveh. But his attempt to flee to Tarshish was 2,500 miles. So he's trying to get as far away from the Lord as he possibly can, okay? And we'll come back to this in a second. But you can see why from everything I've said, why God's instruction for Jonah was clear. He is to cry against it. And in chapter 3, verse 4, he's to do that for 40 days. So time is of the essence for the Ninevites. They've got six weeks to make a decision. Turn and give my life to God and repent for our wicked ways or be wiped out by God. This is important too. God's not randomly choosing like people that are, you know, like um, that are sort of upstanding moral citizens. He's, he's, uh, he's going to wipe out people who are absolutely brutalizing the nations around them and have a history of wickedness towards other people. But here's why this is why what is so key for Jonah's story. Although he knew God sent him to preach a message of judgment on sin, he also knew if men were repentant and turned to God, they would be forgiven and restored. This is clear in chapter 4, verse 1. After the I'm fast forwarding, the, the Ninevites do respond favorably and do repent. But listen to Jonah after they repent. They greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? 
Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. So clearly his message would have been one of judgment, but also, if you, if you return to God, you can be forgiven. That would have been included in his message. Now, let's say we ended at verse 2. So let's say there was no such thing as Jonah, in terms of the rest of the story, and this is all I read to you as a Sunday school teacher or a school teacher, and I made this declaration. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amity, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. Period. Knowing what you know of a holy man, such as Jonah, one of God's spokespersons and prophets, how would you finish the story? What do you think Jonah would have, if you were writing it without knowing it, how do you think Jonah would have responded based on how you, what you know of God's prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah? I know for sure what I would have written. My next verse would have been, And Jonah obeyed the Lord, found the immediate travels needed to do to go east to Nineveh and take the 550 mile journey. And when he went to the city, he preached the message of repentance. And when the people repented, everyone had a celebration that there was a massive turning to God and revival broke out in the city. That's how I finished it. And you probably would have as well. But that's not what happens. Let's read verse 3. <laughs> but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Notice twice the presence of the Lord. Flee. From the presence of the Lord. When you look at this map, Jonah's fleeing is defined to a whole new level, isn't it? He's not fleeing to a neighboring town within his country. He chooses to run 3,500 kilometers away from the living God. 2,500 miles. If you obey God, it's an 800 to 900, somewhere in there, kilometer journey northeast. Fleeing from God, he's going to go directly west and get 3,500 kilometers away, basically four to five times the distance that God has asked him to journey. He was going to ensure there was no way God was ever possibly going to use him in no way, shape, or form for ministry service. As far as I know, and you can check me on this, Jonah is the only prophet that I think has ever been reported to disobey God. So why? Why did he disobey? Jonah saw himself in every way as being superior to others. Ethnically, spiritually, and morally. To understand this, we need to go back in history to remember God's, or the Israelites, the Jewish people's relationships and privileges with the Lord of this world, the creator of this world. 
Let's think about them in the ethnic and spiritual sense as a Jew. The Jews knew that of all the nations in the world, they were the only ones chosen by him to be in special relationship with them. They knew that they only were the only ones to have the title, my son, my firstborn, from Exodus. They were the ones that God had made special covenants with and promised many blessings to them if they obeyed. Productivity of the land, fertility rates, protection of their borders, and ultimately the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come from them. They were the ones given God's special revelation of the law, expressed in the Ten Commandments and beyond. They were given His direct presence in the temple. They knew that God's presence um, was in the temple, on top of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle and temple. Morally speaking, the Jews, when walking in obedience, were a far cry from the lives of the Ninevites. A far cry from the lives of the Ninevites. But here's what's important. All of this led then to Jonah making assumptions. Because of my ethnic and spiritual and moral standing before God, God must not have any mercy or extension of those things to other people. And as a result, I'm superior, and because of their lack of morality and their spiritual depravity and their ethnic race, I am superior. God loves me and loves us as a nation. And Jonah made the assumption that God's mercy and love was only for them and no one else especially those who had neglected God for so long and lived such wicked lives. There's an incredibly important work to us, church, including myself. Many of us have a bad case of the Jonas. We see ourselves often as ethnically spiritually and morally superior to other people. We do it. We have the tendency to fall into those categories. I'll tell you about my, my own journey, just quickly. Growing up in the Northwest Territories and the persecution that I received from the Native people didn't take me long to resent them. I received systemic racism living in the Northwest Territories for a good portion of my life. Native people were the ones that I had to first of all overcome in my superiority complex to them. The Lord over the years has healed my heart and I have no problem now towards them. Years later, it became the Muslim people. I had a hard time with people that uh, wore the burqas and the black uniforms and the We'd be out in 30 degree weather, fully covered from head to toe, and think, what the heck's going on here? 9-11, of course, probably didn't help matters much for a lot of Americans and Canadians. The Lord has slowly healed my heart in those areas too, and now I have very little issue with them as well. I can, in fact, no issue. I can just move in and love them the way God would see them. But it wasn't until my vacation three weeks ago that I realized there's one more group God has to work in my heart. It's the, what we call the woke people and the LGBT community. See, in Okotoks, 
We, very, we see very little of that. We get hints of it here and there. But when you're in Halifax, or you're in Toronto, or you're in Charlottetown, that's the east of Canada. You're close to headquarters of Ottawa. And it's systemic out there. Way more than here. And I realized I could feel myself coming in resentment to some of the things I saw and heard. Now, what's interesting, and I got, I got to sit down with God and like pray through these things to understand some things, but when I'm in relationship with people that are like gay in the gay community, I have absolutely no problem loving them the way God would want me to. When I'm in relationship with someone, I, am, I can easily enter into a loving dialogue and, and, and seek to extend mercy to them. But when I don't know them, for some reason my brain goes towards the judgmental side. Now, I think the Lord revealed to me why. Twice in my life, once at age 15, and once at um, around the age of 26, two men uh, uh, took a, they tried to take advantage of me in certain situations. And so my sensitivity to people that I don't know that are strangers is probably heightened because I, I wasn't even suspecting of anything and something happened in my life. I now realize that I'm going to have to go through the process of forgiveness for those two events to free myself from them so that I can be filled with the love of God to approach the entire community in those ways. So that's me being open and honest. So my question is, who are they for you? Who is it? What ethnic group puts you, gives you the bad taste of the Jonas? What religious group? What family member? What cousin? What uncle? What aunt? What sibling? What parent? What ex-spouse? Are you hoping that God will bring judgment on them and destruction? Or do you see them how God sees them, wanting to extend them an offer of mercy and restoration if they would just turn to the Lord? As believers, we need to remember that God's mercy and offer of forgiveness is open to all regardless of one's background or past or current lifestyle choices. When we walk with God for a long time, we often get spiritual amnesia of what we used to be like and the sins that we have done that separate us from the love of God. I pray that God heals our hearts as we listen to the story of Jonah. And here's my challenge to you. In the next few days and weeks and months as you go ahead and you find yourself rising up like him, declare out loud, Lord, I will not be a Jonah. Lord, I will not be a Jonah. One final lesson I want to leave you with today, and it's actually the main reason I believe that God wanted me to share this with you this morning, actually comes in the form of a question in learning from Jonah's decision to disobey God. What is it that currently God is asking you to do 
that you are running away from. When God asked him to go to Nineveh, Jonah knew what he wanted to do, but he chose to run as far away as possible. Jonah knew, but chose not to listen. And here's the irony in this whole thing. Here's the crazy thing. Jonah was told to go and preach to the Ninevites. Jonah had no idea what the, maybe, what the current situation in Nineveh was. Like he would have some, some, maybe some general ideas from their history, but he wouldn't have been able to give a, like an absolute report of the state of the city being 550 miles away. But God could see everything going on from heaven and knew what was going on in the city. If Nineveh couldn't flee from the presence of the Lord, how in the world did Jonah think that he could? Just by physically removing himself a few hundred miles. And I was talking to Stuart about this when I was sharing my sermon, and him and I were saying, isn't it interesting that we can do all sorts of crazy things believing we're escaping God's notice when we start to sin and do crazy things against Him, don't we? We can justify anything. We can do the craziest, silliest things that just seem so out of character when we try to get away from God and the things He's asking us to do, especially when it means sinning against Him and repenting for those things. So here's Jonah, knowing that God, the Ninevites can't escape God, but he believes he can. How is it we forget what Hebrews 4.13 says? Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. While God's not asking us to go to Nineveh, there may be areas in your life where you and I know that God is calling us for our obedience. And we've chosen to intentionally avoid, flee, and run. So remember, I'm talking a lot of you to the kids here today. So I'm going to go through a list of things for you. This applies to kids and adults alike. Have you wronged somebody lately? And you know that you to apologize for the wrongs that you've done. And you know the Lord wants you to apologize for the things that you've said and done but you've refused to do so. Have you, do you know that God's asked you to go northeast, but you've chosen to go west? How about forgiveness? The Lord knows in your heart the people that you have unforgiveness towards, and you come to church all the time and you hear about the message of communion, you need to forgive those that wronged you, you, you and then you hear all these sermons about forgiveness, forgiveness of what Christ has done for us, and then we, we know it, but we choose to go west. Kids, have you stolen anything from your parents, or from a store, or anywhere else, and you know the Lord wants you to own up to it, but you refuse to go east? 
and keep going west? How about financially, in the same area of money? Has God been pointing out to you that you seem to be um, always worried about money and you refuse to be generous? Or you, you, he's called you to tithe to the church to support those in ministry, but you keep withholding. I know Roger's spoken finances. So since he speaks on finances, spoken finances, that God's been prodding you, but you still won't do it because you're running west. How about if you told lies to your parents, to your bosses, to your friends, in an effort to protect yourself? And God's saying, I want you to come clean. Let no falsehood be in your mouth. But you won't do it. You won't go east. You want to go west. Are you known for anger within the home? Not anger for within the church. All of us are amazing in church on Sunday mornings. But behind closed doors, we have a temper. And the Lord's been asking you for so long to control your temper and to get it under control and submit it to Him. Let the love of Christ dwell richly in your hearts. Instead, anger fills your heart. He's been asking you to do it, but you keep running west, and you won't go east. How about sexual immorality? You're secretly looking at porn. You're, you're living together in relationships, knowing that you should be married. You're committing adultery on the side. Areas of sexual morality where God's been saying, Come to me, let me cleanse you, and you keep running west. How about marriage? You've been intentionally withholding um, emotional and intimacy from your spouse. And you hear sermon after sermon about this need to be self sacrificially loving. And God's been telling you, You need to you know, step up as a husband or as a wife. you keep boarding a ship and heading west. These aren't sin issues here necessarily, they're just, but they're, they're, they're God's best for you. What is, what is the Lord calling you to the mission field? He's not calling you to Nineveh, but is He calling you to a people group or calling you to Bible college? You young teenagers who are thinking about your careers at the Lord, really pressing in your heart to go to Bible college or join the mission field or something to, to learn and grow in Him. And you're so scared and so you want to board the ship and go west. How about you've been coming to Genesis house for 10 years or 6 weeks or whatever it's been and you've been hearing week after week after week give your life to Jesus Christ. And you're, you won't. Heart said you want to surrender, but you won't surrender your whole life to Him and make Him Lord. And so you keep boarding the ship and heading west. Now here's the cool thing about God. If you learned anything today, God is as Jonah said in chapter 4 and verse 1. For I knew that you are a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, and abundant and loving kindness, and one who relents concerning me. I say all these things to you, not to condemn you and feel you like you're left in a hole, but to say you have a patient, loving, compassionate God that wants all of you, 
If you just come to him and repent, he will cleanse you and restore you the way he did the Ninevites. Before we go into time of discussion, I want to give you a chance to respond to today's message. Two questions to avoid the bad case of the Jonas. Who is it that God, who is it that God, sorry, that's terrible, terrible. See, that's what happened in cut and paste things. Basically, who is it in your life that you feel you have a superior complex towards? Who is it? Secondly, who do you deem to be outside of God's mercy? We've been spending time as a church praying, especially on, in the mornings, that God would do a revival in our community. We've been praying for that for like about 100 days now. Pretty crazy prayer to be praying if the same people who are praying aren't willing to look at the people we're praying for with the same heart as God is. <laughs> it's futility. God has to start with our hearts and be filled completely with His love so that we can respond properly to others. Second question. What is it that currently God is asking you to do that you're running away from? I'm just going to play some quiet music in the background. Take three or four minutes quietly in your seats. I want you to spend honest reflection with the Lord. Ask Him, if you don't know already from the sermon, and I want you to ask, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit reveals it to you what the answer is to both of these questions. And when we're done praying, or done in that reflection time, I'm going to offer you three options for prayer. One, you can pray on your own, in your seat, and speak to the Lord about the things that He showed you. Two, if you'd like to confess with one another and share, with one, share one another's burdens, as the, as, as the scriptures say, then Ask two or three people or four people that are around you to join you in prayer. And you can pray for those things. So I encourage you to get into groups if you like. And, step, and thirdly, I've asked Jeff and Abilene to be up front in the front steps here. And if you'd like to pray with Jeff and Abilene, and you feel it's like safe in, in their comfort and in their love, then you can come and pray with them as well. So I'll remind you of those three options. After we, after we spend time in reflection, but take these two questions to the Lord and uh, be honest with them.